0: Good evening, everyone. I'm Ian James Wright from Washington, D.C., and you are listening to The Alphabetical Fugazi, the only podcast that devotes an episode each to discussing every song in the Fugazi catalog, from Fuga A to Fugazi. Z. I'm your host, Ian James Wright. Joining me today to discuss a deep cut called, let me check my notes here, Waiting Room, from that first EP in 1988, is returning guest Chris Richards, the uh, pop music critic at The Washington Post, and one of the brilliant minds from the band Q and Not You. Chris, great to have you back. What's up? Glad to be here, man. Thanks for having me back. Uh, I wanted to start out by giving a special thanks to you because that episode with you was actually the first one that I recorded. And it was one of those situations in life where I had a concept that I thought intuitively would work out. You know, the, the idea of having this podcast where I would get a different guest who had a passion for, for Fugazi for every episode. Um, but I didn't know you know, it's like, you're never sure if your idea is going to work out. But after making that first episode with you, I was like, okay, cool. This could be really good. This'll work. Um, and which is not to say the whole podcast has lived up to that because that's still one of my favorite episodes. But yeah, thank you for getting me started with some confidence and a strong wind at my back.
1: Oh, man, I'm so glad to hear that. And it's been awesome following along with it. I can't believe you're already almost done. <laughs> yeah, it seems like it went so fast. The pandemic, obviously, we talk about the sort of time warping nature of this entire, um, you know, past two years of life in America. But um, it seemed like this went really quick for from the spectators point of view, which means you did a great job. And it's been really, really fun to listen to all these. So hats off, hats off to you. And thanks again for having me back to sort of uh Tie a, tie a knot on the end of
0: it. Yeah, that's that's very nice of you to say. And, yeah, it's it's been, I guess, a couple of years. I mean, if you count the times sp- I spent uh, in preparation. Um, but, yeah, and uh, so thank you, and thanks to all the listeners who have, uh, you know, gone, gone with us all the way here to the W's. And, uh, you know, also... Hello to all the people who have never heard an episode before and just found this podcast and went all the way down to Waiting Room. Uh, I'm sure there are some of you out there. Um, (laughs) There there are a lot of good episodes. Scroll back. We got some uh, cool guests, cool uh, little facts about this wonderful band, Fugazi. So, you know, dig into the back episodes. Check it out. But, yeah, as we said, here we are at Waiting Room at last. And it's, you know, strange doing this song because part of the reason that I started this podcast is that I felt that the music of Fugazi is, you know, little discussed. Fugazi themselves as a band often discussed. There's there's a lot about them, but like I you can't find a lot out there digging into the songs. So I've tried to do that as best I could. Waiting room is a big exception. Like, there's a lot out there about waiting room. A lot of people have talked about it. It's on all kinds of playlists. It's gotten uh, unexpectedly popular in venues that you know nobody expected to see it in. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm I'm in an interesting position here, and I kind of I don't want to uh, rehash everything that's been said. I've I've scraped the internet a little bit and got some bits and pieces here. But yeah, mainly I just wanted to, um, you know, talk with someone who's like a professional pop music critic, and see what see what our reactions to the song, like a song that we've heard a thousand times, like how we feel about it today, and uh, I don't know, just just anything that comes to mind. So, yeah, Chris, can uh, I'll I'll ask you to get us started. What's the first angle you want to come at this at?
1: Well, the first thing that I always think about with Waiting Room is why why is this the song that has come to define them? Because personally, I don't find it to be exceptional. For me, it's not even like top 10 Fugazi song, Um, which might be sound contrarian to some people, but it's very puzzling to me. And the only sort of explanation I've been able to find that's that i find satisfying is that first impressions really really matter Mm -hmm. so this band had a ton of expectation heaped upon it when it arrived and this was track one on the first recording that really got around um and you know again yeah first never first impressions really really matter and they really imprint on us in an intense way and it was so different maybe from what people might have expected it to sound like um but other than that which I guess is huge. We should say it's it's mysterious to me why it's this this the, the enduring definitive Fugazi song because it does not define them at all to me. It seems like a really I mean I love I love the song I think it's awesome, but it uh, and it contains a lot of elements of what make them great. But for me, it's it's pure foreshadowing of, of of greater things to come.
0: Yeah, I was contemplating that same thing leading up to this, and it was making me think like are are there bands out there that I do think they're like first. Uh, song on their first album is their best song i came up with a few answers and i'm sure they're very controversial but i still think uh tunnels by arcade fire is their best song um maybe ny state of mind by nas um yeah Yeah. but but like it's it's sort of hard to think of for me and um and i find myself not only thinking about that but um how it must feel to be in a band that not only has a song that is so much better known than other songs but to have it be the first song on the first album like psychologically i wonder if that sometimes felt like like you have something that you never topped over your at at least in the minds of the general populace over the course of your whole career and whether that's some kind of like weight on you
1: I wonder if you found anything in your in your internet scrapings about that, because I was thinking about that as well, because um I saw Fugazi, I don't know, maybe a dozen times almost entirely in DC. I saw them out of town once, um, when Q and I you got to play with them, fortunately, um, in London. Uh uh to- as the second to last show that they played together.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, which was amazing, like highlight of one of the highlights of my life. But that said, um, I had only seen them play waiting room in DC one time, mm-hmm. ever. And it was almost like shocking that they did it. It felt like, I don't know, almost like a Freebird moment or something. (laughs) But of course, like once the song got going, it was great. And I was so happy to finally have heard it performed live. Um, But I was always thinking like, well, are they ashamed of this song? But then I kind of went trawling back through the um, concert archive on the Discord site. And, you know, they weren't shy about playing it. They definitely played it a lot um, throughout the entire, I mean, definitely at the beginning of their uh, journey and all the way to the end. It was pretty frequently um included in their set lists also i noticed maybe like in sort of like inland places it was like a lot of waiting room in north (laughs) dakota and iowa and things like that maybe because i don't know maybe these were places that they hadn't towns they hadn't played before and they who knows i have no idea why but i always wondered like was it a song yeah did it like your question was it like some kind of barrier or a thing that they didn't want i mean obviously you know historically all kinds of Punk groups have shunned the idea of expectation and fulfilling the audience's demands and kind of trying to throw down and challenge your audience. And Fugazi obviously was a huge – um they were huge on that. And their whole set lists were obviously improvised. They didn't write them out ahead of time as you've talked about in the show. Um Everything was sort of spontaneously arrived at through different hand gestures and signals that took place on stage, which is such a cool thing. Um, but then I just wonder, like, why did this song never kind of come up in the, the bingo machine? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, or, or so rarely. Um, but it turns out that it was only rare in D.C. It, from, from from the sort of cursory research that I
0: did. It's funny you say bingo machine. I'll get to that in a second. Um, but you're right. It, this is, in fact, the number one most played live song in their live career
1: is it wow okay cool
0: yeah as we've established the the data set is incomplete but i have it at 628 plays uh the only song to break the 600 mark um, i'm wow. sure i'm sure if we had complete data from all the shows i'm sure reclamation would be up above 600 too but um but i don't know okay. yeah so yes absolutely they uh they played it live a lot and um i i do have a couple of quotes about that so here's here's something that ian said I feel that none of our songs are more important than the others. We're trying not to let any of the songs become overtly highlighted. The one song that really haunts us is Waiting Room. That song, actually, we ran into a situation where every night people were yelling for Waiting Room, and we thought, well, it's just one of our songs, and for that reason we're not going to play it. And we went off the stage in Germany, this was, and the people were all, more, 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 so we went back on. And then more and more. So we went back and did two more songs and more and more. And it finally occurred to us, these people, they're waiting for a waiting room. And basically, <laughs> it's like, if we saved it for last, it would be sort of like Queen saying, saving We Will Rock You for Last. <laughs> I saw I saw a Golden Earring once back in 1974, and they did Radar Love first and last. So that's a song we end up doing almost every night. We didn't do it tonight, which was kind of cool for us. I mean, it's a great song and all that, but it's really nice when you're comfortable with everybody, and you don't need to pull out the really obvious song and all that. But sometimes we'll do it just so we don't have to do it uh, and have people think we're saving it for some encore. It's more embarrassing then. It's just weird. It's a weird situation. We're really stuck. End quote.
1: Wow. That's really cool. Can I, can I say two things about that? Yeah. Um, one, Ian once told me something to the effect of that they were always nervous or may, I don't know, maybe a little more self-conscious than normal playing in Washington DC, which to me seemed insane because it just seemed like they were totally in their element. They were in their community and they were absolutely on fire. Like the Fort Reno shows are incredible. Um, and some of the, greatest i mean they are like the greatest live music experiences of of my life and again i'll say like like on the first time you had me on the podcast um None of this is hyperbole. Like, this is absolutely my truth. <laughs> and I know it sounds like I'm so over the top for Fugazi, but they really were the most formative and important band of my life. So when I say things that border on sort of like religious zealotry in their favor, um, <laughs> it's real. It's it's really, really real. I'm not being hyperbolic in the hyperbolic times that we live in. Um, but all that said, like, it just seemed weird to me that they were self-conscious of anything. They seemed so completely free and open on DC stages and surrounded by the people who they grew up with and who knew them and loved them probably more than anywhere else on this planet so the idea that like there was any kind of inhibition happening on this stage is crazy to me but the fact that waiting room wasn't played very often maybe is this a, a, is a is a is a sort of clue to maybe that the truth of that the other thing i just wanted to mention is that ian really got me to listen to queen a lot more seriously um back in the day i think one of the times that q and you was in the studio with them in inner ear he was just you know, kind of talking about how the sort of like the endless riffs of, of Brian May yeah. and how he just always, he's just, he to have like another riff in his pocket, like at all times. And it really sent me back into like the queen discography. I think maybe all of us, I don't know. Like there was a lot of things, you know, it wasn't like Ian sat up on a rock and, you know, proffered <laughs> wisdom in the studio, but we were so hyperly attuned to everything he was trying to teach us about music that I feel like we heard a lot of his sort of ideas about rock and roll collectively and try to apply them so i know we listen to a lot of queen in the van and queuing on you after ian saying that so it's cool to hear him i like i hear him talk about classic rock always i think
0: it's great i like the image of ian sitting in uh you know cross-legged twirling a lotus blossom and uh (laughs) talking to you about queen (laughs) yeah um yeah brian brian may is a riff monster um yeah amazing dude you know you mentioned the bingo machine thing um so there's a podcast called Songwriting Malpractice, and um, I, I forget the um, host's name at the moment. Uh, I'm sorry about that. He, he reached out to me, and we had a little exchange. Um, he's a really nice guy, and the, the podcast is great. And in episode 65, Guy Pechotto was on, and he was he told a few funny stories, one of which was, uh, to paraphrase, that they played the show in Milwaukee that was a bingo hall And they had this, like, giant apparatus, like a a, a wheel or a ball or something that you could spin and pick something out at random, right, to play bingo. So they decided to, like, write all their songs on scraps of paper and throw them in there. (laughs) And the idea was that they would have audience members come up and pick out their set at random. Oh, wow. uh, So, yeah, to hear Gee tell it. They, they, you know, did this. They started their show. They had the first kid come up and pick one out, and he picked out "Waiting Room." And the band was like, "Oh, for fuck's sake!" Like that is hilarious. They don't want to open with that.
1: Oh uh, yeah. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. They were really. I mean, again, we talked about this last time too. Like their reputation for being the sort of like unfun, too serious group. Like they were absolutely had a lot of prankish ideas about approaching live music. Um, just to like, not to like regale you and Q and not you tour stories, but we went on tour in Japan in 2003. And, um, some of the people that we stayed with were playing us videos of Fugazi the VHS that they had taken. And one of these amazing <laughs> jokes they did was, um, Ian and Guy would like cover up their mouths like while they were talking into the microphone, and then back at the soundboard, they had their sound engineer speak in Japanese like to the crowd and say, <laughs> "You know, thank you so much for coming." Out. And the crowd went berserk because they thought that Gee and Ian had learned like and become incredibly fluent in Japanese enough to like address the crowd. Um, and then, and then slowly everyone picks up on the joke, but uh, <laughs> it, that was just so hilarious to me and the bingo hall story i had never heard either that's amazing yeah. i love that they weren't too precious about it again because this is all holy stuff to me you know what i mean i love that there was still obviously an element of play at what they were doing at all times which is so cool
0: yeah and um, i read some somewhere else where ian was talking about you know the the feeling of playing it like they they play it with with joy like it's not like they feel obligated to it they they did in fact enjoy playing waiting room um, this, there's other little quote I found from a uh, tablet magazine and, um, the interviewers asking him about that and, and the repetition of it. Uh, and Ian said, quote, but what's not repetitious about it is that every moment is not the last moment and you never know. Like if you're having sex with someone, maybe it gets repetitious, but it doesn't feel that way to me. It's a song. Every time I played waiting room, there's potential for that moment. That song hits people. They love it. It's important to them. End quote.
1: That's cool. Yeah. I like it. I like, I like it. Yeah,
0: yeah. I guess I was thinking about this with with Q and not you, also, right? Like, you, I would say you guys didn't have one song that was like so much like it more in demand at your shows than any other, right? Um.
1: Well, I think every song kind of gets a de facto hit, and for us, it was the song "Soft Pyramids." By the end of it, I mean oh, things were right, weird yeah. because we had we had we, ra- we made a whole album. "No Kill No Beep Beep was our first record, and then our bass player Matt. I uh, was out of the group after that and we weren't able to play a lot of those songs anymore. So things kind of got discombobulated. Maybe one of those songs would have become like the tune, but then soft pyramids was track one <laughs> on different damage, our second album. And people really, really um got attached to it. Yeah. Now, again, we love that song. Um And I still love that song so much. And I love what Harris and John are playing on it so much. I think we just love to play it. And also too, we were into communion. We were into like feeling the love. So people, Really responded to it in a really visceral way when we played it on stage. So we, I think, we probably played it every show. I can't imagine we ever skipped it, honestly. So that might have been one, but part of that, but we, we had a hand in it (laughs) for sure.
0: Um, Yeah, and something else that I always think about when it comes to Waiting Room is like if if you look at their early live sets, right. Um, In fact, you go back to their first show set list. It's nine songs. It's Joe number one, song number one. Furniture, merchandise. Turn off your guns. In defense of humans. Waiting room and the word. It's an interesting set because fully half of it, like the songs that have words and stuff, were songs that it, they didn't even consider worthy of including on an album. Um, especially if you could, uh, if you count Furniture, which was only released like over a decade later. Yeah. So th- those were all songs that they they passed by and in a way, Waiting Room does seem like a standout in that context, and it it makes me think of, like, being in a band and having one great song to kind of buoy you through the, like, awkward early times. Like, I wonder if they hadn't had Waiting Room to pull out at that first show and and the successive shows. Like, sometimes, like, one great song, I think, can really give you a head of steam and, like, I, I've been in bands where it's like, yeah, we're, we're, we're clicking, we're, we're playing well together. It sounds good, but we, we like don't have one really great song that we're all super jazzed about. And <laughs> like, I feel like if you don't have that, maybe things don't last.
1: I think I, you're really hitting on something there. It really speaks to my experience in bands too. The idea of the one tune. And then it's kind of like a big discussion before the shows. Like, well, should we play it first? Or should we play it last? Are there going to be more people there at the beginning or at the end? You know what I
0: mean?
1: Yeah. <laughs> and centering. And also too, like, I think, um, you know, the quote you had from Ian earlier about how all songs are considered equal, you know, at the beginning, they're just not, you know, what I mean? who knows what his experience was. But I think for most groups, it's just not the case. You know what I mean? Because you're learning each other, you're learning how to communicate with one another and you have different breakthroughs. And I think there are sort of like clear front runners and things of the sort. And then things begin to even out. So I think, I think you have a really good point you're making here about this idea of one song that kind of becomes like, I don't know, like the the, the standard that we're going to try to match here. That's actually a really helpful way for me to think about waiting room rather than a standout hit as something almost like the bar for entry. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, and I'm, I'm going to try and hold on to that as I keep listening to Fugazi for the rest of my life.
0: <laughs> I'm, That's I'm, cool. I'm glad it's a point that sticks. Yeah, I, and I, for all I know, um, the guys would vociferously disagree with that. But yeah, <laughs> right? sure, just, sure. Just, just what was running through my head as I looked at that first set because I was uh, – another interesting thing to do is to uh, download that recording and then listen to the the last ever uh, Fugazi show in 2002. Like they're both of those versions of waiting room back to back and sort of revel in the vast, vast difference in tempo between them. (laughs) Like the uh, first ever show is really sluggish feeling. And uh, by the end, they're just sort of blasting through it. There's like, we've played this over 600 times. It's uh i I feel like when you're in a band it's it's hard not to do that when the better you know a song but um uh, yeah yeah, interesting listening. well people
1: have always talked about people have always talked about the reggae influence on waiting room too uh-huh. and i was i was I was of like yeah, I kinda hear it, but I wonder if that's like giving like stretching your ears a little too hard to be like, look, it's different, you know? But then once the demo, they released the demo and I heard that version, I was like, oh, okay. Like at that tempo, the reggae feel makes itself very right. apparent and very foregrounded. <laughs> and I was like, okay, that's, I get it, I get it now. Um, but I always thought it was always something I kind of had to squint my ears at before, but now it's like, all right, yes, got
0: yeah, it. Yeah, and especially like in comparison to Minor Threat, like certainly more reggae-ish than oh, Minor yeah. Threat. And, <laughs> yes, and bands of that So For yeah, sure. I get it. Uh, Something else I found that was interesting is, you know, just Ian talking about writing it. Uh, This is from One Week, One Band. Former guest of the show, Tom Gibb, uh, wrote this interview, but um, he asked, what were your inspirations at the time? Were there any other DC bands going in a similar direction to Fugazi? And Ian says, I don't think so. I had been pretty obsessed with funk and also a lot of dub and reggae stuff, but I also really loved all kinds of music and I had these really specific ideas for songs. I always have. I was writing like crazy. I couldn't stop. I wrote waiting room in bed. I woke up with this idea. It just came so fast. Uh, end quote. Uh, I was sort of surprised to hear that. Like it's one of those songs that you hear people talk about. Like, yeah, I was just, you know, it came to me in a dream and I woke up and wrote it down. Um, That's cool. And I never knew before reading that that waiting room was one of those. Um, but yeah, it seems like. Me
1: neither. Me neither. Awesome. I appreciate you doing your homework ian this is, it's always it's, it's I, I come here to learn things and ask questions <laughs> i'm the most I'm the most useless guest in the history of your podcast
0: I guess you know so we 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 haven't talked about the song itself very much, but I did want to hit on also you know talking about its great popularity uh I would be remiss not to mention the football team formerly known as the Washington Redskins playing this at their games. Um, this is surely something that uh you know about well. There's a Mark Prindle uh, thing where Ian is quoted as saying when, for instance, Fugazi's waiting room was suddenly being played at Redskins football games, people were outraged, which I appreciate because it's nice that people were like, what the hell do they think they're doing? But it's also kind of funny to think that somewhere in the bowels of that stadium or in the bowels of that organization, somebody who's responsible for picking the music, like put a Fugazi song on there. It was not of our doing. We didn't have anyone placing it. I can say again with absolute 100% positive assuredness that there is no insertion going on. This is actually people's choice, and I like that. I think it's reassuring. I don't like it because it makes me feel good about my music, or I don't like it because it helps advertise my music. Rather, I like it because it means that the channels still exist, and that's a nice thing to think. And uh, sort of elaborating on that in the Washington City paper... The article says, according to the Redskins, Waiting Room made its way to the team's playlist at the suggestion of a game-day producer. He fell for the song, which he was heretofore unfamiliar with. He's never heard of Fugazi either. While burning a CD copy for his brother, he put it in the rotation as a defensive bump, producer lingo for the background music used when the skin's defense is on the field. Quote, I have a tendency to feel as if the soundtrack of life is by design that it's is force-fed, Mackay says. But clearly, this was not force-fed on people. We didn't have anything to do with this. So this whole experience has made me realize that sometimes, somehow, things do float up to the surface. I'm not saying that as a judgment of my music. I'm just saying that my music has floated up to the surface, and that's pretty nice. End quote. So I like that little perspective on, you know, how Ian feels about the massive popularity of waiting room. Like, he he's not resentful of it, and he seems to, like, really appreciate this, like, interesting way that music worms its way into you know broader listening even without the huge mechanisms of major labels and stuff
1: yeah that's cool i always think about with with punk rock and hardcore you know a lot of people take a crooked road to get there you know what i mean like it's it's very hard to like you know, one day I was just walking down, you know, uh, this down Irving street and the Wilson center was there and, you know, bad brains were playing inside. It's just, nobody has that kind of experience. You know right. I mean? We all find out about things. Sometimes we find out about through word of mouth and these really organic ways, but there's a lot of sort of crooked, crooked roads to entry. And I think accepting them is, is sometimes a good idea. Um, and I think I like what Ian has said here too about it. I like the idea of thinking about it almost like an act of subversion, you know, like <laughs> someone deep in the bowels of the organization is throwing a spanner in the works by, yeah, yeah. by putting Fugazi's song in there, but it's cool. I mean, like, I think, you know, I have really conflicted feelings about the idea of professional sports as a point of local pride. Um, you know, we take pride in these gigantic corporate gatherings in a way that we don't take pride in, uh, you know, other community-based things that I think need the investment and need the the caretaking in. But at the same time, I'd rather them be playing music from Washington, DC at a a Washington football team game or at a Washington Wizards game um, than than not. So I'm with it.
0: Yeah, I'm with it too. Uh, I I remember thinking it was really cool when I heard about that. So I'm all for it. Yeah, well, how about actually talking about the the music or the lyrics? Um, do you have any? I have a
1: whole man. I have a whole pile of notes here. It's uh, like it, it's like a dry erase board with conspiracy theory level lines and zigzags across it. So,
0: bro, don't let me hold you back anymore. I want to <laughs> hear some of this.
1: <laughs> Ask any questions, and I will uh, spin loose here. Um, well, I guess the first thing I wanted to talk about is I think a lot of people, and this gets this sort of ties into the idea of why it's big. It, it's the first song that a lot of people heard from this band with huge expectations and a reputation to live up to before they even sort of made a splash, if you will. Um, and a lot of people really delineate it as like, this is the demarcation line between hardcore and post hardcore, you know? And, you know, as music people, we just know that like genres are not physical barriers or even like marks in time that we pass through. You know what I mean? They're just kind of words that we use to try and gather ideas to make them more presentable to other people. You know what I mean? They're almost like containers so we can kind of get everything in a way that we can hand it to someone else. You know right, what I mean? When right. I say a punk song is a punk song, I'm just doing that to kind of give someone something to, a better purchase on it if you will. Yeah. And then it's on the and then it's on them to take it all apart. But I do think if you do want to subscribe to this idea that waiting room is the sort of breaking point between hardcore and post-hardcore, the one thing that I think is cool about that idea Is the silence that comes in very early in the song. Like, what is it? 20 seconds? There's like that pause, that pregnant pause when everything drops out. And it's a strange place to have a big dramatic silence in a song because things are just getting going, right? (laughs) Right. And for me, it's almost just, it's almost just like the band is like ramping up and then they just stop. And I think it's almost like this gesture where you as the listener have the opportunity to kind of collect yourself. And it's like, okay, are you with us? Take a breath here. This is going to be different than what you think it's going to be. Let's all go forth together now. You know what I mean. And for me, I just see it almost like as a moment when you kind of go whew, when you look in the mirror. You know, you adjust your shirt, you make sure everything's cool, you take a breath, and then you turn and 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 get started with it. And I think that silent moment there's just so much meaning. You can superimpose, I guess, so much meaning into into what it is and what it's offering. And and I think if anything, even if that interpretation doesn't resonate with you as a listener, I think it's still no matter what that gap there is some kind of prompt, some kind of prompt to listen more carefully to what's coming next. Um, And what that is and what people think that is, is entirely up to them. But I really, really love that moment because it happens almost instantly. You know, we're just getting, things are just getting underway and then the whole floor drops out for a second and you have a moment with yourself.
0: It's a hugely important part of the song. And first of all, I think it's kind of funny. It's, It's almost like a little joke about the, the, the subject matter of the song is like we're waiting for the music to start again, of course. Totally, um,
1: totally. Yes, <laughs> but, exactly.
0: But yeah, uh, and we've talked about this on the show before. It, this is not uh, by far the only Fugazi song to feature a moment of silence. And I think they're always effectively chosen. And it's great on the record. And it's really great live also, because from time to time, Ian would j- say something in that little pause there. Um, having to do with like the events of the night or or like just be quiet and listen to how the crowd would respond and like insert their little crowd noises there. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's always interesting and it's always fresh. And that must be I, that must be really convenient uh, in a song that you play over 600 times to have some part of it that has a little element of unpredictability to it. Yeah.
1: It's an opportunity every time. Right. Yeah. That's um, cool.
0: About that pause. I do. I have a quote from. Um, Well, from Joe Gross's book, good friend of the show, Joe Gross, uh, in the 33 and a third in on the Killtaker uh, book, but he was writing about the early days. uh, And uh, he says, Brendan Canty recalls that while cutting what became the master take of Waiting Room, Mackay screwed up very slightly on the song's extremely pregnant pause and mumbled fuck very softly to himself, but loud enough to be picked up by the mics. Uh, Brendan says, quote, we thought it was hilarious and we were going to leave it in the version. And uh, Ted Nicely was like, don't be fucking assholes, you guys. If you guys have any hope for airplay, and we're like, airplay, fuck you. He's like, any hope for airplay, we're <laughs> going to take that shit out. And uh, Guy says, thank God we listened to him. That drop is actually significant to the song. And instead of turning it uh, into a joke, it actually has a musical meaning. Uh, That's cool. Yeah, it, it it is cool. And it it's also interesting to... Uh, take that knowledge and then listen to the first demo recording where it does legitimately seem like Ian screws up something about like the pause and he, he says like whoops as if he forgot that he wasn't coming in with the lyrics there right So that right. makes me wonder if yeah it's just a moment that he tried to replicate for the master take uh in like sort of an artificial way um, I don't know but ah, but you, yeah but if you turn the music way up you can hear someone say something in that pause like uh, it the drum mic's probably picked up or something I don't know um but maybe that's maybe that's Ian yelling yelling the old F word I don't know
1: That's cool that's cool that's really cool
0: I'm just I'm the, I'm the king of that's cool
1: today that's what I'm saying to everything that you say <laughs> I realize We'll get into like the ghee flavor flavor element in a second but I'm 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 the flavor flavor right now saying that's cool to <laughs> all these facts you've looked up.
0: I need a of Flav. That's why I haven't done any of these episodes okay. solo, man. I don't, I don't <laughs> want to do that. Yeah. If you want to talk about Guy's contributions, for sure. Uh, sure.
1: Yeah. Let's do it. Well, the, the thing about Guy that's amazing. So this obviously introduces this idea of him, which they put forth themselves, I believe, and many people ran with it, this idea that it was like a call-and-response element, and he's sort of doing flavor flavor to Chuck D-inspired stuff. It's 1988, you know what I mean? Like, uh-huh. it was of the moment, and and, and and their ears... And obviously, that's a huge thing for them to, to... idea for them to put out, too, to be like, yes, we come from this very tight, granular, hardcore world, but our ears are are listening to something faster. And that that ties into what you were saying about Ian listening to funk and, and reggae music and things like that. The thing I will say that's interesting about this is, um, I think in the first verse, mostly I think, well, correct me if I'm wrong, but in the first verse, he's kind of like, geez, roll sort of like to sing along and accentuate certain lines. And then in the second verse, it kind of goes into like a more call and response, you know, and function, you know, yeah. kind of back and forth element or whatever. So that's cool. Cause it gives the song an awesome dynamic. Um, but the cool thing about the first verse, I think it's underrated is it's sort of almost like he plays the role of like the one man crew vocal. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? Like everyone chiming in for like, to like, you know, two fingers pointed to the ceiling kind of stuff. And again, if you want to get back to this idea of a break between hardcore and post hardcore, like that's a really almost like literal uh, embodiment of the difference. You know what I mean? The first verse, it's like sing along all together. You know what I mean? I, Gee is like the cue for the entire room to erupt on these certain syllables and then in the second verse it's more like about something different it's about a dialogue between two different voices rather than like one straight voice and everyone rising together as one it's like a sort of a more dynamic back and forth kind of thing so again if you want to read this idea that waiting room is the departure point between hardcore and post hardcore and this could just be me because I've spent almost all of quarantine like rediscovering hardcore music and listening to all the bands that I dismissed and poo-pooed when I was younger so I'm very attuned to crew vocals right now <laughs> like I listen to them almost exclusively I'll go back and play refrains of certain songs and try to f- see how many voices I can hear in the mix and like wonder what the room space was like and things like that um but that's something that jumped out at me getting ready for the getting ready to talk to you tonight is just like how cool that first verse is and yes the Flavor flavor stuff is cool and the dialogue is so cool but I love when Guy and Ian sing along together it's so powerful with those two voices kind of combined
0: and it has to be more than two voices, right? Like it's, it sounds pretty massive when they sing together. It has to be like quadruple tracked or something. Don't you think?
1: I would guess so. I would guess so. Um, but again, like this is also the kind of times when like, I feel like my ears sort of fail me because loving Fugazi as much as I do, I definitely don't fight the reverie. You know what I mean? And I try not to be like analytical, like when I just get myself swept away into it. Um, I like to think about the ideas that the music engenders, but I'm never trying to be like his, you know, the G string sounds out of tune on, you know what I mean? Like I just, I can't, I just literally can't do it. Like when I try to like zero in on the sort of super tiny details of the music, the whole thing kind of explodes in my face because I'm just so into it. So, but I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, obviously Guy was a big double tracker later in their career. I think a lot of that might've been influenced by like kind of Beatles stuff. Mm Um, and then I will tell you, like, you know, from you recording sessions with Ian, he was not, you know, against double tracking, but he definitely was a kind of like let's use this sparingly kind of approach and was more into the immediacy of stuff. So I don't know, maybe maybe Ian is single tracking, he's double, who knows? Well, so someone knows, just not me.
0: Yeah, there there are certainly plenty of places in the Fugazi discography where Ian's voice is double tracked, but yeah, like absolutely not not like a john lennon (laughs) i want this on everything automatic double tracking kind of stuff Uh, right yeah i'm sure he does use it effectively and and chooses his moments i guess but yeah uh, he's great and the stuff that he would just sort of like do live almost to me became almost as iconic as the stuff that's actually on the recording like after ian sings because they can't get up he would do this thing it's like down 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 yeah it's it's like really nice (laughs) little thing he would do it almost every time live um and i I love that i always kind of like do that in my head when i hear the song
1: that's cool that's really great
0: another cool thing that he's doing like if you listen to the intro right even before the vocals come in he talked about this on uh our, our like friendly sister podcast, dare I say, and on end episode fifty six, um, G was on and he said he was doing little hi hat noises with his mouth and you can definitely hear that he's like yes, There's right, a lot of echo yes, on there.
1: yeah, those are awesome, yeah. so cool. Uh, That's something that I do vocally to myself when I'm when I'm listening to the song for sure.
0: <laughs> yeah, L- so
1: quiet beatbox.
0: Guy's adding a lot of cool stuff. Um, I mean the the whole band is. Um, I like, I like Brendan's just sort of, um, one sort of like snare hit with a little hi-hat. Uh, you know, he comes in with that instead of a kind of drum roll. He's just like, bam, and then, and then they're into yeah. it. Um, of course the bass line, um, in particular, uh, you know, I, I guess I hadn't really focused in on this before, but I want to give props to Joe on the third note of the bass line. And I feel like there's so many covers of, waiting room out there and i wonder (laughs) how many people get that right because it's different (laughs) the very first time the little pickup joe plays it differently he's like instead of like the chromatic Ah, yeah you know yeah you're right Uh, you're right and i right i think it's the only time he ever plays that note in the song i don't think he goes back and does that again it's just his little cool little intro english that he puts on it which is great
1: yeah 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 I love that. Yeah, you're right. You're right.
0: <laughs> the
1: baseline's so cool. It's classic circular baseline, you know, kind of goes back to where it started from. You want to listen to it forever. Right. I mean, it's a good thing that the chorus of the song is so avalanching and fantastic. Yeah. Um, because that baseline is just one of those, you never want it to end kind of things. And the repetition, I mean, that's, I mean, again, this gets into like their dub interests or whatever, like repetition, you know, we, traditionally think of it as like stultifying you know what I mean as like energy depleting or whatever but of course we love repetition in music and we love mild variations on repetition and we love repetition when it's played by human hands because it automatically has variation in it because there's just little micro mistakes happening constantly when when music is being Performed through t- human touch, you know? Um, but for me, yeah, one of those bass lines that could just go on, you know, in a m- sort of Mobius loop forever. Yeah. And I would, I would not be bored with it, which is really cool. The guitar, the guitar part is so dope too that kind of comes over it too because it has like this, um, you know, it's all that two note, like ascending guitar riff, you know? Yeah. So I've kind of become obsessed with punk songs that have like two note or two chord progressions if you will and i think that like i, I really noticed it like about a couple years ago in the music of bikini kill like all my favorite bikini huh. kill songs were basically like two chord uh you know refrains or verses that move from low to high like jigsaw youth has it starbelly boy has it with the bass um strawberry julius has it the verses on jet ski they're all like you know just two chords one going up and Up and back down and up and back down and for me I kind of created this idea in my mind that it's like this is what punk struggle is all about like it's about just like trying to raise people up over and over again and the sort of arduous repetition (laughs) of that work you know what I mean because it is an ascension but it's only one step up you know what I mean and then you're back down and then you're back down again and you got to bring it back up and I realized too because waiting room I get so enchanted by the bass line that moves in all these sort of like this, this beautiful like elliptical direction but the guitar riff is just one of those simple one, two step up, like going up the stairs kind of, um, riffs. And I just, I thought that was so simple and dope. I got to ask Ian about the writing of it too. Cause I wonder if it was like, if it was lyrics or if it was just like, Oh yeah, I have this two chord thing. Here it goes.
0: Yeah. It's like, um, it's like the guitar is the underpinning of the song where you might normally think that's the bass player's job. Exactly.
1: Um, exactly. And that's a big signal to be like, this band is a democracy. You know what I mean? <laughs> like we're, the roles are not going to be what you expect and we're yeah. going to do different things. So, okay. So we're, we're, that's good. That, that's like peeling off the onion of importance here <laughs> and like why this song matters too, because they are establishing, yeah, this idea of who they are and like what they're, what they're going to do in this context, which is cool.
0: And I like this. I like
1: this. Keep going. What else you got, man? What else you got? What else you got?
0: Well, you know, <laughs> since you're talking about the baseline and how iconic it is, and we talked about the popularity of the song, I just wanted to just relate that I was on Reddit, like, I don't know, a month ago, and um, someone posted this thread, this, like, question, and it was not, like, in a in a little punk or music subreddit. I think it was, like, on the main Ask Reddit thing, where it was, someone was like, "What a, what's the greatest baseline of all time? Um, And to my great surprise, like the third most upvoted one was Waiting Room by Fugazi. I was like, are you kidding wow. me? Like that's, awesome. that's how big this bass line is. Like I, there's so many people out there who um, maybe have never even heard another Fugazi <laughs> song in their lives, but they know yeah. this bass line. They love this bass line and can't blame them. It's a good one. I've heard a
1: lot of people sound check with it, but I don't think I've ever heard it like at a guitar center. Have you?
0: Um yeah, coming out of my uh finger tips. Oh,
1: when you when you played it at a Guitar Center? <laughs> I,
0: I, yeah, I, One I, morning you realized that no one had you'd never heard waiting room at Guitar Center, so you
1: drove to the nearest one and said, Let me let me try this I out. I <laughs> spent
0: I spent an embarrassing amount of time at Guitar Center when I was in high school, like trying out amps, being like, Oh, maybe I can afford this one someday. I'm gonna play waiting room. Um Awesome. <laughs> oh man. Good times.
1: Great riff. Great riff to go for it with. My, my show off riff was the beginning of Under the Bridge by the Chili Peppers. Oh, yeah,
0: that's a good one. I learned.
1: I, uh, I, I'm a really stumbly guitar player and uh, not very technically adept whatsoever, but I learned to play that in my early guitar lessons. So whenever I had to like test out a guitar at the shop. The little... Uh, bung, 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 yeah,
0: I think that's maybe the first time I ever used hybrid picking. That's a, that's a good one. Yeah, there you go. There you go. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, want to, want to talk about the, the lyrics a little bit.
1: I do. I do. Yeah. I want to know what you, what do you think of a man? Like I will, let me do, let me, I did a homework assignment. I looked up one thing (laughs) for this podcast, but there's a, there's a um, quote from, um, Mark Anderson, the activist here in DC, who is, I, it was for a Washington post story that Leo Galil wrote. I, f- I found the same... Well I, don't have the, I don't, well, I don't have the quote, so you can bust the quote off. I was going to paraphrase it, so uh, there you go. I just set you up.
0: <laughs> All right, uh, here we go. Um, yeah, Washington Post. It says, Mackay was still smarting from the demise of his previous band, Embrace, one of a handful of short-lived groups that made up the first wave of emo, and he wanted to make sure his new project would last. Quote, Ian was absolutely determined that he was not going to make the same mistakes this time around, says Mark Anderson, Uh, that's what the song waiting room is really about. Anderson says, uh, referring to the track that led the demo and would become perhaps the band's signature song. It's his song about waiting for the right people and the right moment. Okay. Do you buy it? It doesn't sound quite right to me. Tell me why. Because they can't get up. (laughs) Did you you do that on purpose? (laughs) No, 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 no.
1: Um, yeah, because <laughs> Oh wait, I just realized what happened. Oh my gosh, yeah, sorry, okay. Uh, I, I oh, thought we were gosh.
0: doing a little comedy routine there. No,
1: oh man. Uh, my whole life is a comedy routine, but not <laughs> but, but not intentionally. <laughs> yeah, Go no, on. I'm sorry. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Go on, sorry.
0: No, it doesn't sound quite right because it sounds like the, the waiting that Ian Mackay is doing in the lyrics is not the kind of waiting that he wants to be doing. It's it's like an impatient yeah. thing. He wants to Right. Get out there and get started. He's he's sick of um waiting for exactly the right moment. He just wants to do whatever he can with the resources and the people that are at hand, uh, to me.
1: Yeah. I definitely in my youth absolutely heard it as that because that's what I felt. I felt impatient when I was young. And I absolutely felt like the world was racing past too quickly and I had not made my mark yet. I think when Q and I went into the studio with Ian to record our first single, I had just turned 20. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I remember feeling like, Oh man, thank God this finally happened. Like I'm I'm getting so <laughs> old. You know what I mean? Like, like nation of Ulysses had already put out 13 point program like two years ago at right. this point. You know what I mean? Like in their district, I'm really behind. Now of course I realized that, you know, what a baby I was at that time. Um, but the feeling of impatience, especially in a scene that is moving quickly and that a lot of young people are doing really exciting stuff at an incredibly rapid pace. It is really easy to feel time, In my experience, just, just blasting by you. So when I was young, I always heard waiting room that way. And then when I read the Mark Anderson quote that you just read, I had, I tried to think about it a different way. And I was like, well, you know, you know, isn't any song about impatience also a song about patience? You know what I mean? Like if you are feeling impatient, you're still having to grapple with the idea of, of, of waiting and being stuck in an inertia and overcoming it and trying to solve it. You know what I mean? And and in all those efforts to get through your impatience, you are learning some kind of patience. So maybe it works both ways. And these are, you know, two strands of a rope intertwined, if you will. But, um, you know, and then the other things I started to listen for in the music, I was like, well, where's the patience in the music? Where's the restraint? And I think with the guitar is like, there's all that kind of like palm-y stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, for your listeners who don't know it, the palm mute is basically when you put a, put the, the flat of your hand over the strings. So rather than having this big clangy Led Zeppelin ring out thing, you kind of have that sort of like, and Fugazi were big time palm muters. Um, especially early on too. And I always loved it cause it just gave the guitar a different texture, a different feel. But I think it also does, um, articulate some kind of restraint in the music and restraint in music, actually in punk music. I love it because it suggests like a wildness that is sort of behind, Um, the curtain, if you will. You know what I mean? And like, uh, when something's being held back, you know, you can feel the pressure of like the water pressing up, pressing up against the dam. You know what I mean? Before the dam breaks, if you will. Sorry to mix all these metaphors, but, um, (laughs) the, the palm mute is like, is, is like a patient gesture. You know what I mean? And also an impatient one. You know what I mean? This idea of like trying, and then when you get to the chorus, you know, the, everything rings out and becomes more open and avalanching and, and cathartic, if you will. Um, and maybe the wait is over, so to speak, but, I've, I'm trying to hear it both ways because any, when anybody has such, and Mark, who obviously I love and respect, when he has such a clear idea of like what he's like, this is what it's about. Anybody who can throw down like their take on it so confidently, I'm like, okay, there's, there, there's a perspective that I have to hear here that it's that, not my own. So I'm trying to get into that zone.
0: Oh, yeah, totally. And um, I, I, maybe, it's, maybe it's a little from column A, a little from column B. You don't want to wait, but you don't want to be too rash either. You want to just sort of like choose the right people to make music with.
1: The one lyric in the song that I think is, again, I know I'm, re- I'm undoing all of our conversation. to be Like, why is this song so big? And now I'm giving all these reasons for why I think it probably is. <laughs> but um, I'm going to fight for what I want to be. That's just delivered with such clarity and force. It's one of the great punk lyrics. It's one of the great things that people, I think, want to hear in you know, counterculture music, because there's a fight that's going on. There is conflict, but it's for the future. It's for who we're going to become. It's for the potential within all of us It's a celebration of potential, if you will. And it's the kind of thing that makes a song like black flags rise above really work. It's the stuff that makes all the bad brain stuff about PMA endure for so long. I think people, even though punk music in many ways was about, sort of dread and like fear of annihilation and, you know, against, you know, modernity and all these sort of corporate mechanisms that are going to ruin humanity. There is a hopefulness underlying all of it. You know what I mean? Because otherwise, why would we lament it? You know what I mean? If we were, you know, like it's like, we want, we want something better, you know? And I think the songs that really foregrounded that are the songs that endure with a lot of people. And I think that line in waiting room is probably one of the reasons why the song has held on for so long
0: a huge sing-along line live right yes like, exactly
1: yes totally
0: <laughs> totally that, it might be the best moment of the song if you see them play it
1: i guarantee you i screamed at the top of my voice on august 13th <laughs> 2001 when they played it at fort reno the only time i ever heard them play it for yeah. sure
0: It it really taps into the like the impatience of youth the wanting to to do something big to take like you've you've been in school for so long you're and by the time you're like 18 19 you're like sure this has been preparing me for something like i've been filled with all this uh prerequisites um maybe knowledge maybe just you know checking boxes but like i'm getting to the point where i'm finished and now what it's got to be something big and for some people it's a huge letdown maybe a huge anti-climax and there's, I'm sure, this huge desire to, yeah, to fight for what you want to be.
1: Well, it's an important lyric too for me to hear as a 42 year old in in 2022. You know what I mean? Like we're not, we're never done becoming. You know, like we we are still becoming who we are. And if we want this world to be a better place, we have to find, we have to keep fighting to find new ways to be better people yeah. and better to each other. So. It's also, you know, it's something that resonates with the young, but I think, you know, it can resonate with anybody at any point in our lives if you're, if you're open to it. So for me, I definitely, I was, I mean, obviously I'm in a very sentimental and intense place right now. Like a lot of people, you know, with the pandemic, I've been very, very closed off from friends and family, you know, with quarantining and things like that. And, um, it's, it's a lonely, strange time. You know what I mean? So music has been hitting, music's been hitting me like in a really intense way. And I was just kind of almost knocked on my, ass by that lyric you know hearing it oh it's almost like i heard it for the first time you know getting ready to talk to you tonight so um
0: yeah no so, yeah, man, you're totally you. right like it's it has relevance at any age but i can't help listening to the song and feeling this tremendous amount of sympathy for young people right now going through this pandemic like man i i swear i would volunteer to like go through another you know five years of of covidness if you like everyone under twenty five, could it could not affect them somehow? Because I feel so bad for for people that age sure. right now. Like,
1: yeah, how, absolutely. How terrible!
0: Like these are the years when you want to get out there, be in contact with people, be you know, you're in college, seeing your friends face to face every day, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, I hear that.
0: Um, I hear that. You know, to jump ahead a little bit, usually I read some um, comments from our listeners about the song. But yeah. um, something that I never knew before, this is pointed out by um, Jared Coffin, beep, 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 this is Ian Wright uh, just chiming in after the fact to let you know that what you're about to hear is a spurious rumor, and I have it from Ian Mackay himself, that it is nonsense and that this uh, episode of TV has nothing to do with waiting room. But uh, I figured I would just leave it in there because it ended up being interesting to me anyway. And it's it's kind of a funny example of how rumors sort of perpetuate themselves and attach themselves to Fugazi in particular. So, um, yeah, once again, discard what you're about to hear, but enjoy. Uh, so he seems to have heard somewhere, and he can't exactly remember where, but it's it's backed up by uh, James Vitito, another listener, um, that they, they heard at some point, maybe in a fanzine, that the song title or maybe part of the inspiration is uh, about an episode of a, sh- a show called Night Gallery and this was a show that was hosted by Rod Serling um, uh, of, of The Twilight Zone and it was a yeah. p- pretty similar wow. show to The Twilight Zone um, so it uh, it and the sh- the show was called, the, this episode was called The Waiting Room and you can find it online and I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, That's cool. Kind of interesting um, it's, it's like this, you know, this cowboy comes into this uh, saloon and uh, I I don't consider this a a spoiler because you know if if you're a savvy <laughs> consumer of media the twist will become apparent to you right away that uh, he's basically like this is a an afterlife sort of situation and they're in hell or purgatory or something like that um, he, just him and these other cowboys who lived these lives of uh uh, uh, uh you know shoot 'em up um, gun slinging and one by one they're sort of called out of the room to sort of like pass on to you know, the annihilation or whatever. And Jared says, from what I heard, Ian Mackay saw the episode and was very disturbed by it. So yeah, like that, if you take that, that's another extension of how he was feeling at the time. This like this weird purgatory slash hell kind of situation was playing itself out in his mind. Maybe
1: that's cool. I never heard that. That's amazing. Yeah.
0: For, and for some reason, you know, that reading that listen watching that episode, can make me think of uh, Casablanca. Just another thing that popped into my head. Where the, the, <laughs> the intro of that, talking about the yeah. people who couldn't get visas, they wait in Casablanca and wait and wait and wait. Um, sure.
1: <laughs> I mean, the folk song appeal of it too is like, yes, it could be about this very deep existential idea of purgatorial waiting, purgatory while living, you know. Um, but at the same time, it's like a song that you might be reminded of when you're waiting at in line at the grocery store yeah. or when you're at the dentist, you know what I mean? Like literally I've been in waiting rooms and I've thought of the song, which is almost like a country music thing. You know what <laughs> I mean? I feel like or, or like folk songs, you know what I mean? They're, they're, they're set in like intentionally given these sort of like details, these daily life details that will make the song spring into your memory, you know, right. um, when you actually have that thing in, in real life. So again, as, if, as we try to do this like sort of uh deconstruction of like why this song resonates like maybe that's it like this is a song about a place where people really spend time
0: (laughs) you know yeah Um, we've all been there
1: physically or metaphysically
0: (laughs) yeah we're there and we're forced to uh at least before the age of smartphones, we were forced to read all the dull magazines that were set out for us. <laughs> and like,
1: oh man, I live, I live for the magazines. Of the dentist <laughs> office now. I'm so excited to like see what's happening in the pages of Entertainment Weekly yeah. in 2022. <laughs> I highly recommend it to everyone. Put your phone down next time you're the dentist and check out a Sports Illustrated, and and you'll be surprised just where like magazine layout is in this day and age.
0: Um, something else I wanted to uh, discuss just briefly was just sort of the various covers and mashups that waiting room has been a part of um there like i mean it's almost it's almost impossible to name all the bands that have covered waiting room there like you can just find scores of them on youtube popular bands covering it um i i don't know if you had any uh, particular standouts in mind um but there are a lot um, of them
1: true this will sound really snob city but uh, very few bands understand the pocket like Fugazi does, yeah. and even like and even like TV on the Radio, a band who does understand the pocket. Their waiting room covers that I saw online are woo, not quite hitting for me. Yeah. And I think I might have even seen one live at Merryweather Post Pavilion in 2011, and I have zero recollection of it. So this is not any kind of slander at TV on the Radio, who I think are a really good band and who definitely understand rhythm. But um, it's a tricky little uh, needle to thread. What Fugazi did.
0: It really is. As,
1: ev- as as evidenced even by their own early recordings. You know what I mean? It took them a while to thread it. <laughs> so. Um, but that's the magic in it, too. This, their sense of rhythm and locomotion was just so unique to them. You know what I mean? And it's it's really, really hard to replicate. Have you heard any that you felt were like convincing or compelling or, to, or even took the song in a direction that felt like, you know, almost like a sense of ownership over it?
0: On the whole, I feel much the same way that you do. Um, I do have to give a nice tip of the hat to... You know, there's a video that went viral a few years ago of a bunch of high school kids performing this, um, and they were they're part of a, a school <laughs> of rock uh, in yes, Cleveland. Yes, I'm sure you yes. have seen this. I uh, did see it. Yes, they were a group that called themselves the Jazz Band Rejects, fronted by young ladies, um, the, like the lead singers, a woman, the bass players, a young woman, um, and they do it really well. It's like there's ten people in the band or something. Yes, but they're very faithful to it and I think I thought they did a great job and um to to make a very candid admission to you Chris <laughs> you were not my initial first choice to, to be a guest on this episode I was trying to get people from that band um <laughs> to be on the episode oh, wow. <laughs> and, and recount their experience because it it really blew up and they got a lot of comments um I I'd say yeah. o- overwhelmingly positive I'm sure there are a few like old uh you know crusty old punks who were like ah yeah this isn't good but, um, so that didn't come together. I, I'm sure partly because <laughs> me reaching out to them, you know, was basically uh, a nearly 40 year old man sliding into the DMS of college girls and being like, Hey, do you want to come on my podcast? <laughs> so, um, yeah, but, uh, m- you know, maybe, maybe they'll, uh, be able to do, do some kind of bonus episode later. I don't know if you guys are listening, you're still welcome on. If you get the chance, that would be great. So that was really good. Um, there's, there's mashups girl talk through waiting room into um into this thing with uh I think he he mashed it up with Rude Boy by Rihanna. Uh, okay, yeah. That was cool. There, there's um
1: Ian. Waiting Room was the go-to Fugazi mashup. Of course. I I I, I I'm a sur- I'm a proud survivor of the mashup years. And uh <laughs> and I definitely definitely heard it more than twice, for sure. And again, I just can't place where it was, though. I'm sorry to say.
0: It was also I forget who did it but uh somebody mashed it up with uh, independent woman part one by destiny's child which actually oh um, yeah ian MacKay actually praised that in the pages of uh, ultimate guitar magazine and uh he said that one actually was pretty fucking badass that one there's a kind of mel- melodic kind of merging they managed to interweave the tune to one song with the guitar playing and the melody of destiny's child to form an entirely new song so um yeah who the mashup artist there got some got some props what do you think about um throwing some ratings on this one for people just joining us you folks who just scrolled right down to waiting room what we do on this podcast is on a scale of one to five stars but only in the context of the entire fugazi catalog only comparing fugazi songs to each other Um, we try to rate the song so what do you think chris richard's waiting room how many stars would it get from you
1: if you asked me this last time, and I think I said all Fugazi songs get five stars no matter what, which I want to stick with. I'm, I'm ratings averse. But here's what I'll say. I don't think it's the best song on the first EP. Or it's not my favorite anyway. I think Bulldog Front is a cooler song. Interesting. Send me to – I have to go back and listen to the podcast about Bulldog Front. I can't remember who uh, the guest was. But um, it comes – like Waiting Room to me is all about like tension building, and it feels great. And then Bulldog Front was so – Killer, like the refrain of it, is like the big release for me. I love it so. Uh, without giving, maybe maybe I should say four stars. If I'm gonna if I'm gonna give Bulldog Front the five, then Waiting Room has to be four, I suppose. I don't know. Yeah, fair I'm, enough. I'm tough with scores, man. I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> I. How about you? I'll go. I'll go four point five. Um, I'm I'm with you. It's. I don't think it's Fugazi's best song. It's not my favorite, but um, there's a lot that's great about it. There's a lot to love. Um, and I, I do love it. So, yeah, I think in the end it has to be a, like a four and a half for me. Cool. Uh, I, I don't know if there's anything to say that I haven't said about about why, but, um, yeah, just fantastic. It's a vibe, as the kids say. <laughs> um, I think. Maybe well, maybe I'm already behind the times with that.
1: We covered a lot of good terrain here because I'm literally looking at a yellow sheet of paper with notes, and they're all crossed out. We, I, I, you asked about every <laughs> single thing that I had thought about, so... Thank you so much for entering this sort of telepathic zone with me tonight.
0: Beautiful. Let me air a few more of our listener comments. They uh, posted these on the Alphabetical Fugazi Facebook page about this song. J.J. Sorensen says, A fun challenge is trying to keep time and count during the dead space at the false stop at the beginning. If you can nail that, maybe you should be a drummer if you aren't one already. Thomas Harding says, I currently have a love-hate relationship with Waiting Room. On the one hand, I can concede it's the platonic ideal of early Fugazi and even what became post-hardcore writ large. On the other hand, it's also become the lowest common denominator of Fugazi's output and post-hardcore. It gets played way too much, and so after all these years, it doesn't matter how good a song is, I'm mostly sick of hearing it. And um, James Vidito says, I always took Waiting Room to be Ian's response to the end of Minor Threat and Embrace. Those bands hadn't went as he had hoped. Um... And I won't make the same mistakes because I know how much time that waste is clearly referring to that. Um, I've heard he wrote this song pre-Fugazi a time when he was in limbo, biting time and forming a new music endeavor. He was literally in the waiting room until his time was called for the new project to get off the ground. Function is the key is such a potent line. It's so perfectly Ian in that it seems simple, but its meaning could be more complex. I think he's referring to interpersonal relationships in a band, and it's how Fugazi are. They're bandmates, friends, and as close as brothers. They function well together. For as trite and cliche as the song has become through heavy rotation, it still packs a punch and set the bar for what a great post-hardcore song should be. Um, yeah, great. that we, we, we failed to highlight that line, function is the key, but it's, it's one that stands out in my mind also.
1: That's cool. Shout out to James Vidito. I'm actually looking at a 7-inch that I'm mailing to him from the post office tomorrow. Oh, no way. (laughs) Weirdly, yeah. We've we've become like IG DM uh, correspondents. Great. (laughs) Funny, yeah.
0: General Lafleur said, it's the song that got me into the band, so I'll always have a soft spot for it for that reason. I also think it might be the song by any artist, not just Fugazi, that I have the most versions of in my iTunes library. The original, first demo version, three covers, three live renditions. Um... Mike Farr said, I was in junior high school, and I remember hearing that Minor Threat Singer had a new band. I was hoping for another amazing hardcore band. Um, Heaviness and Angst were the name of the game. Eventually heard through the grapevine that it was called Fugazi. so I bugged the college record shop (laughs) owner for months to try to get an album in. Finally went down one day, and he had the cassette. This was back when Discord was making the black cassettes. It had the whole EP on each side. I put the Fugazi awesome. tape into the boombox and I don't know what I was expecting but Waiting Room came on I was immediately hooked. Um to me the groovy verses gave the heavy choruses even more impact than when Minor Threat was screaming all the way through. Um Yeah. Uh, Yo.
1: Blackshell, Blackshell cassette <laughs> Discord lore. That is deep lore that I appreciate. That's awesome.
0: <laughs> Do not quote the deep magic to me. Um <laughs> Dan Shaw said, I discovered Fugazi's albums out of chronological order, so by the time I got my hands on a thirteen song CD I had thoroughly digested Repeater through Red Medicine when I was starting to think of them as my favorite band, while those other albums all had time to grow on me. I remember understanding and completely digging Waiting Room and the songs after it right away on first listen. Um, Brad Goodwin says, Since nineteen eighty eight, I've cited that pause as an example of how impactful it can be to do the unexpected right out of the gate in any creative endeavor. In every waiting room I've ever been in since then, I've waited in vain for the song to stream over the sound system in a mammoth moment of serendipity. (laughs) And since 2003, I've been learning to let go of feeling stuck in a metaphorical waiting room awaiting Fugazi's next release. Not easy, but this song's message is there to help me and every other fan cope. Um, Yo,
1: I give that comment a five. I give that. Like, can I give my five to that? Take my rating off of the song and maybe we give a five to that. That is awesome.
0: Bradford Goodwin gets uh, five-star ratings on a lot of his comments. He's, uh, he's, he's one of our more um, poetic, insightful uh, people on the page. Really awesome. This guy clearly has some writing chops. Um, Eric Eddy says, as a middle school teacher, I've mandated Fugazi Fridays. It warms my heart to hear a choir of 12-year-olds belting out, I wait, I wait, I wait, I wait. I was about that age when I first heard the song, thus beginning my lifelong relationship with Fugazi. (laughs) And uh, finally, R.W. Swanson says, I'll let the others reflect on how the song has had such an impact on the scene, Uh, but it must be acknowledged how utterly economical the bass notes are in the verses, yet Lally plays them with such subtle variations from one line to the next that the rhythm section feels hypnotic and gets about as groovy as this band will ever again. So, yeah, um, thank you all for weighing in. It's it's nice to hear from all of you. And Ian, can I just say congratulations to you, man, on having such an awesomely engaged and
1: thoughtful listenership. That's like really fantastic to hear. All I mean, those are incredibly insightful points made by many, many people. So, props to you on this podcast and creating a community around it. Big respect to you right now, man.
0: Well, thanks very much. The respect goes both ways. And at this point, I'd like to ask you if you have any plugs. Never. Where can listeners reach you? Do you have any sort of projects coming up that uh, you've been working on that are coming out? Anything like that?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I'm still the music critic at the Washington Post. My work appears there regularly. Um, probably the easiest way to get it is through Twitter. It's like the fastest way to find it. And my handle is at Chris double underscore Richards. I post all my stuff there. Um, I also do a quarterly print only fanzine called WC ringtone. Um, issue 14 is coming out very soon. Um, I've never written about Fugazi, but I have written about Bikini Kill and the two chord songs, um, in in the past. I'm also working on a zine, um, a standalone zine that I hope to have done this spring, which will be called Remedial Hardcore. And it's about, um, the experience that I mentioned earlier in the podcast, this idea of going back and trying to listen to all the hardcore bands that I missed or dismissed growing up, um, from, you know, basically from 1980 to, 2022 um and it's basically like a review it's almost like written like um, album reviews if you will and it's right now it's like around 120 records that i have acquired and marveled over um in the past couple of years as i sit here in my basement trying to feel a sense of community mm-hmm. <laughs> while, while whilst in complete isolation so um that should be out hopefully in the spring um and again everything i tweet about everything that i'm up to so that's the best way to find out about it
0: awesome well, thank you once again, Chris. And uh, yeah, uh, you have written about Fugazi, it must be said, um, at least tangentially. Recently in the Washington Post, you had a nice article with uh, Danzi and Tara about the end of uh, Inner Ear Studios. And uh, that's that's something that was very meaningful to all of us. So thanks for writing about it and bringing some goddamn attention to it. I I feel like I was going crazy this whole year with how little media attention that was getting.
1: Washington Post had you covered. I think we had three different articles about it, two in Metro and one in the in the style section where I work for. It. So, yeah.
0: Well, yeah. Uh, so once again, Chris, thanks very much for joining me. And you and listeners can hit me up anytime you like it. Fugazi A to Z at Gmail dot com. And yeah, listeners, I hope you'll join me for the next episode when we'll be wrapping things up, discussing Watkins syndrome. Until then, keep your eyes open.